the officer had confirmed to me that person who was lying on the pavement had perished. I'm placed under arrest, of course, put into the back of the police car. I could hear it come over the police radio that there was another passenger in that vehicle who had been pronounced dead at the scene. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, a free safe space for people to share and learn from others' experiences with mental health and addictions. I'm Todd Rennebaum, suicide attempt survivor and recovering substance abuser. I'm so glad you came. This is another amazing episode with another amazing person. In this episode, I'm speaking with Martin Lockett. He is a counselor, a public speaker, an author. He's got a bunch of education and, and, and stuff. Uh, and he got it all while in prison for 17 and a half years for killing two people while driving intoxicated. Martin has taken his life, turned it around, and doing good for people and helping people that are possibly on the same road of making the same mistakes he made. And I find that just fascinating and noble. This episode will also be on YouTube, on my channel, Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, along with some older episodes from way back to ones not that long ago at all. I just started the YouTube channel, so if you if you look and you're like, wow, there's not many subscribers or viewers here, uh, it's true. Yeah, there isn't. But uh, yeah, I only started it about two or three weeks ago, so uh, and it's a whole other beast. I don't know exactly what I'm doing there yet, but uh, the conversations and videos are great, so go check those out. If you want to keep up with the podcast, you can find me on Instagram, Bunny Hugs Podcast. I'm always posting stuff on there. Sometimes it's just memes and uh, inspirational words, and sometimes it's about the podcast and whatever. So uh, you can go there, or you can go on Bunny Hugs and Mental Health on Facebook or on TikTok, Bunny Hugs Podcast. Also, just want to say hello to all my new listeners. Uh, there's been quite a few over the last six months or so. Uh, I, I just got some analytics from Spotify and it's been a busy year. So if you've been listening right from the very beginning or you this is your first episode, welcome. And I, I'm very excited you're all here. So many people have gotten things from my guests and it's so amazing. And if you think other people might get something from my guests, uh, whether it's just information or to feel related to, uh, please go ahead and let everyone you know about it. Yeah, I consider this a mental health service and I consider my guests just speaking and coming on here uh, as a mental health service. So please utilize this free mental health service, let other people know about it and enjoy. Uh, but anyway, without further ado, uh, I give you Martin Lockett. So I grew up in um, Portland, Oregon in the 80s. And, you know, for anyone who is somewhat familiar with Portland today, where we have the whole you know, keep Portland weird mantra and the naked bike rides and, and things like that. Um, let me just say it was vastly different in the 80s. There were gangs coming up from California. They were fighting for like drug territory. I remember there were drive-by shootings like almost every other night. It just became routine um, when I was a kid. Uh, there was prostitution rampant. I mean, it was, it was, it was a tough place to live. And, but, you know, Thankfully, I had two very loving parents um, who took care of us. My dad worked at the shipyard. He worked at Freightliner to support the family. Mom stayed home to take care of his kids. I have a twin brother and I have two older sisters. And, you know, by all intents and purposes, we were we were a normal working class family in my estimation. And so um, things were pretty normal until I got to high school. You know, so I was, I was a pretty shy kid. And we got to I got to high school and, you know, it's 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 imperative that you, you have people to hang out with. You have other kids that you can hang out with. You don't want to be by yourself. So I remember this kind of led to me um, hanging out with some guys, some kids who ha who happened to live in my neighborhood. But I had not, you know, ever met them. And so I'm hanging out with these guys and, um, you know, they're doing things like, you know, smoking cigarettes and smoking weed and skipping school and things like that. And I remember at age 14, we had gone to um, a house party. Kids were throwing a house party. And the kids at this party, they were like 15, 16, 17 years old. So a little bit older. And these were the popular kids. Everybody wanted to hang out with these kids. We're hanging out with these kids because a guy that we knew 
he he knew everybody right so we were able to hang out with, with with them and i remember he handed my brother and me um a couple cans of beer and he went off into the crowd to go you know mingle with other kids and i remember my brother and i were standing there and we're looking at each other and we're like you know there's no way we can drink these because mom and dad would absolutely kill us but we also had kind of done the the, the mental calculation, if you will, that if we don't drink, like, you know, we're not going to be accepted with these kids. So like we have to drink. So I remember I, I cracked it and I took a few swigs and almost gagged because it was so bitter and disgusting. But I remember the feeling I got where, you know, my chest heated up and then all my inhibitions came down. And I remember that party. I just freely mingled with people and talked to girls without fumbling, fumbling over my words breaking out in a cold sweat right and so i was like finally i'm able to break out of my shyness and to talk to people freely and and like this is great it was like a miracle drug and so for the next couple of years that was pretty much um my uh, relationship with alcohol if you will it was at parties and social settings and things like that and then around age 16 things turned for me because now i'm looking at my life beyond high school and thinking about a career and all these things. And I am feeling um, not very confident in myself, not because of something inherently wrong with me necessarily, but because, you know, where I live, where I come from, nobody around me is, you know, doing anything great, going off to college, getting a degree, working in downtown, wearing a suit to work. None of that was, you know, were exemplified for me. So, I am feeling pretty low uh, in my life and I struggle with my identity and I felt depressed. And so, you know, mental health and, 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 and struggles like that were not any, you know, we never talked about those things in my household, right? Just never, they never came up. So I manage in the only way that I know how, which is to drink. So now I'm drinking before I go to school at seven in the morning. I'm drinking during my lunch breaks. I'm drinking after school. I would come home some days, lock myself in my room, drink a 40 ounce of malt liquor and listen to sad music at age 16 and just like wallowing in self-pity about my life. And so this this is when my dependence on alcohol really, really took hold and it persisted um, for the next several years until until I got into the criminal justice system. Mm. How, how, how did you manage to get your hands on alcohol at, at that age? So mainly we would, um, my buddies and I would hang out outside of the store and pretty much like anybody going into the store, we could give them a dollar and they would buy us whatever alcohol we wanted. I mean, we did this every day. Sometimes mm -hmm. we would steal it. We would go to the corner store and we would steal like the bottles of Mad Dog 2020 and Night Train and all that, you know, rock gut um, uh, <laughs> cheap wine. But mainly we would, we would, we would get people to buy it for us. Mm. Yeah, I, I I grew up in a small town, a very small town, so it was, we had to be very careful because, like, who? <laughs> oh, it's my friend's parents. <laughs> you know, it's like, right? Oh God, or the, or friends of my brother, and then they would tell my brother, and then my brother would tell me. But yeah, so, uh, so yeah, that wouldn't work too well. No, no. <laughs> uh, so, about what age was it that that you, um, you you got involved in the, in the crash? So for this, I was I was 24 years old and um, I had been drinking and driving at this point every day, even though. And so let me just say, so for mm -hmm. for context, I I was working at a warehouse. I was going to community college in the evening because I wanted to become a nurse at this point. I had my GED. I wanted to become a nurse. And, um, you know, I moved out of my parents house. I'm living with a woman in Washington State. And paying my bills. And so so on the surface, it looked like my life was in order. Right. Mm -hmm. But I never I never even though I had all these external things going. I never addressed the underlying causes of my addiction, which is really, you know, me um, uh, instead of seeking external validation 
right? For me to actually have a healthy self-concept of, of Martin and who Martin is and, and what direction in life does Martin want to go and what validates Martin internally, right? Not externally, but internally. I never figured, figured those things out. I never given them any attention. So those factors were still there and they were driving my addiction at this point. And I made it okay to drink and drive um, because I had all these other things in my life that I could point to to say, well, things are not really that bad, right, as, as we do um, in our addiction. So um, this takes us into New Year's Eve of 2003. I had gotten off work early because of the holiday. So I remember I went straight to the liquor store. I bought a fifth of gin. I then went to my parents' house, hung out with my twin brother, drank the alcohol over the course of two or three hours. And then we decided we would go to a house party that night. Uh, a guy we were going to high school with. So um, I went back to the store after I drank that entire fifth of gin by myself because every single day, like clockwork, I would I would go to the store and I buy four 24 ounce cans of Old English um, because it was like 8.3 percent or something, and I was looking to get the most you know the most bang for my buck, if you will. So I bought four 24 ounce cans of that. I drank that over the course between about five and eight o'clock that night. Went and hung out with another buddy before we went to the party. The three of us, uh, my brother, me, and him, drank a pint of Hennessy between us, killed some time. Then we go to the party at about 11 o'clock. Wait, wait, wait. To the party. You, dr- you drank a fifth, 24 beer, and uh, what was the other thing you said? Four, so four 24-ounce cans of beer. So 96 ounces of beer, a fifth of gin, oh. and then a pint of Hennessy between the three oh. of us. I'm not even sure what I've... How big a fifth is? I'm Canadian, so I got. <laughs> oh, um, so I I think it's it's a little less than a liter. Gotcha. Okay, we call that it's a, a little less. Yes. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. So, so, so yes, yeah, so I drank a Mickey, four twenty bronze cans of beer, <laughs> and a pint of Hennessy, and then we get to the party, and then we drink more alcohol, of course, because it's a party, and we got to drink, right? Yeah, yeah. So we we celebrate the New Year. Woo. It's New Year's, yes, indeed. Got to you know leave uh, two thousand three with a bang. So um, we do that. We celebrate the new year. Everything is great. We leave the party at about 12, 15 a.m. The three of us get into my vehicle. I take my friend home without incident, get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, Todd, I'm just extremely exhausted because I've been drinking all day and I think I'd had one meal at about four o'clock that afternoon. So, you know, I need to get home. I just want to go to sleep. I know I didn't have to work the next day, so I want to get home. So I on the freeway. I, I speed to about 80 miles an hour on the freeway. And, you know, this makes my brother nervous. And he's like, hey, man, you know, you should slow down. You know, the police are out. It'd be in a holiday and all. I thought, well, OK, that makes sense. So I slow down, exit the freeway. Now we're driving in a residential area. And again, I, I get impatient. And I just want to get him home. So I begin to speed to about 60 miles an hour. And my brother starts to yell at me and he's like, man, slow down before we crash. And I tell him, calm down. I know what I'm doing. I've got this. I've done it a hundred times. But just to keep him quiet, I went ahead and slowed down. So we continue to drive for about 10 minutes. And I'm just about to get into the left-hand turning lane to drop him off at our parents' house. And then he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he said, hey, man, let's go up the road so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't want to make one more stop. I just want to go home and go to sleep. So we drive for a couple blocks. And then about two blocks from that point, there's an intersection. And the the little mini mart we need to get to is just beyond the intersection. And so I'm looking up at the light and the light is yellow. And I knew there was no way I was going to make this light. As intoxicated as I was, I knew there was no way I was going to make this light. But I just want to get the stupid cigarettes and go home. So I immediately punch the gas and I become tonal vision where I don't see anything to the right or left of me. And just within three or four seconds, you know, boom, you know, just this earth shattering crash. And then I remember everything seemed to go in slow motion. Um, The airbag envelops my face and it feels like I'm being suffocated by a parachute. Um, My car comes to a slow winding halt. And my first instinct was to look, was to look at my brother to you know see if he's okay. And he's starting to move a little bit, so I'm you know relieved that we're both alive. And a guy comes rushing up 
to the driver's side door frantically. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. I tell them. And I step out of my vehicle and I'm so consumed with my superficial items like my car because it, it conveyed importance and value on onto me. So I'm walking around my vehicle and I'm looking at my custom rims that are destroyed. The entire front end is the car is totaled. And I'm not even thinking about the people I just hit. And then my brother gets my attention and he points across the street where the car had spun about, you know, 70 feet before it stopped. And he said, hey, man, he said, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there and it, it doesn't look like they're moving. So in that moment, it starts to sink in the magnitude and the severity of what I had just done. But of course, you can't process anything because here comes lights and sirens everywhere rushing to the scene. I'm still drunk, of course. The policemen are there. Uh, they're talking to me. The first responders, um, the the fire fire department, they're trying to extract the passengers from the, the vehicle very carefully. Um, they take my brother a few feet away to, to interview him. And like five minutes into that interview, the officer had confirmed to me what I had pretty much known to be true, which was that person who was lying on the pavement had perished. And he told me that another person was being transported to the trauma center just blocks away. So um, I'm placed under arrest, of course, put into the back of the police car. We head for downtown for processing. And from the back seat, I'm listening to the police radio because you can hear a, a lot of chatter about the crash, right? And about 10 minutes into that ride, I could hear it come over the police radio that entirely unbeknownst to me, there was another passenger in that vehicle who had been pronounced dead at the scene. So there's two people dead, I know. There's one person in very critical condition who could still lose his life on one hand. And on the other hand, I'm keenly aware of the, the, the laws in Oregon that require for a DUI manslaughter, that require 10 years in prison day for day, which means you cannot get out a single day early for good behavior, working a job, getting an education. None of that matters for this crime. It is 10 years day for day. And I've got two manslaughters. So I know I'm going to prison at 24 years old for roughly the next 20 years. So I remember we drove past my, my, my family's house, the block, and I looked down the street and I see the house one last time. And my heart sinks so deep because I know I'm not going to see that house for about the next 20 years. Man, I am so sorry, Martin. That's, I can't even imagine, like, I would have been in shock and the denial, like I, I don't know how I would have man like and and the upsetting part for me, well, there's a lot I mean the whole thing's upsetting, but I know when I was drinking in, in the middle of my addictions and stuff, I drove drunk and how I never got caught or how I never got in an accident, it it's a miracle because there are lots of times where I woke up and don't know how I got home. And my car is in the driveway. Yeah, I blacked out many times as well, Todd. Um, you know, and, and the 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 interesting thing about it is that I was highly intoxicated when they when they took my blood. Um, they 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 drew my blood that night at the hospital, which was like an hour and a half later. It registered at 0.24, which means I was even more intoxicated than that at the time of the crash. Wow. But it's but it seemed, you know, as intoxicated as I was, like I had been more drunk on many other nights where I did make it home, but couldn't remember, like you said, couldn't remember how I had gotten home. So, you know, when you think about it, like something like this, sadly, was bound to happen at some point with with, with the way that I was doing it, um, you know, how often I did it and how much I drank every single day before I would get behind the wheel of a car, my car. And, um, you know, it, it's I'm just my biggest regret. The only I wouldn't say the only regret. The biggest regret is obviously, you know, I hate that two beautiful people um, had to lose their lives for me to finally figure it all out. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
actually the very first episode of the podcast, like almost three years ago, it was uh, someone locally, localish around here. And uh, same thing, he, he had taken a young lady's life drinking and driving. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, it, it's just, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, yeah, I, I, it could have just as easily have been me uh, that I had taken someone's life. And, you know, I, I, you know, I thank God that I didn't hurt myself, but I just thank God I, I never hurt anybody else. Cause yeah. that, that would, I, yeah, that would have been, Oh man, I can't imagine. Um, have you, it, well, actually the, the, the first guy, uh, I can't think of his name now. <laughs> All of a sudden doesn't matter. Um, Go listen to episode one, everybody. <laughs> um, but he he now goes around and he talks. He he's like you, like he he speaks about his his uh, experience with the father of the person who whose life he ended up taking. I, wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm curious if if you've been in like in touch with the family at all, if they reach out to you or or and I and I mean, yeah, it's one thing. Or, is it, or are they, were they related, the two people, or were they friends? They were friends. Oh, um, as oh. far as I knew, that yeah, they were friends, and so that so 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 let me just two families then. Yes, entirely two, three families, because the guy who survived, um, you know, he he was um. Well, I'll I'll explain that in a second. Sure, sure. So the so I learned about these people's lives about three or four days later after the crash. I'm in my cell, minding my own business. Someone slides the the Oregonian newspaper underneath my door. I couldn't understand why I didn't ask anybody to see a paper. I figured there must be something important in there that somebody wants me to read. So I pick it up. I begin to thumb through it and I see my picture on the front page of one of the sections. And each paragraph that I read, um, these people's lives unfolded. And so now these are not just victims. These are these are people people with, with, with lives and stories. And their story was that they were recovering addicts who had turned their lives around. They were now helping other people get clean and sober. They had like 16 years in recovery. They were volunteers with, um, volunteers of America. They worked with, um, the mothers against drunk driving organization they would watch women's children so that these ladies could attend AA and NA meetings. Like they were heavily involved in the recovery community in Portland at the time of, of their deaths. They were actually coming home that New Year's Eve night from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party at the Oregon Convention Center when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And the, the columnists who had written this, this article he talked about, he called it a palpable irony that these people who had devoted their lives to help people get clean and sober would have their lives cut short by a drunk driver. And then he says something at the end of the article, changed my life forever. He said, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them. And it was such a heavy statement. And I didn't quite know how to make sense of it because, again, I'm 24 years old. I know I'm going to go to prison for almost 20 years. And I don't know how this situation is possibly going to help me. But I also knew that I couldn't ignore what he said. It was such a profound statement. So I had to kind of really dig down deep and get spiritual with it to try to ascertain what those words were supposed to mean for my life. And so for the next seven or eight months, I prayed about it. I meditated on that phrase. I would hear it when I would wake up. I would hear it while I'm walking the track outside. I would hear it when I'm laying my head down to go to sleep. And then it finally came to me that the only way this tragedy would not be in vain is if I carry on these people's legacies. And if I literally make it my life's mission to do everything I possibly can to not just prevent drunk driving. Of course, I want to do that, but to help people who are struggling in active addiction so that they don't continue to cause harm to themselves, to their families, to their communities. And so, and so I committed myself to the mission before I even knew what that would look like. I didn't know how that would manifest. I didn't know, I didn't know to what end I could do that while I was in prison. I don't know what programs were available, education. I didn't know any of it. I just knew I was committed. And so um, to fast forward, when you ask, have I heard from 
So I made this. So at the sentencing, I made a, a, a vow to the family members and everybody that was there in attendance that I would spend the rest of my life doing this work that was important for me to do. Um, I didn't hear from anybody in their families until 16 years later when I was a little over a year away from release. So we're talking at the outset of the pandemic, March of 2020, I get a letter. I don't know who this person is, but I recognize the last name on the on the outside of the envelope. And so now my heart is in my stomach because I don't know what this letter is going to say. So I open up the letter. Today's episode of Bunny Hugs and Mental Health is brought to you by Co-op. I've been a member of my local co-op, Sherwood Co-op, for, oh, about 25 years, I think. My co-op is one of more than 150 local independent cooperative associations in more than 600 communities across Western Canada. Co-op is a different kind of business. It's not just a gas bar or a grocery store, although co-op is those things too. At its core, co-op is a group of people working together to help their neighbors and build their community. Co-op members are owners and success is shared with everyone. Your co-op doesn't benefit one person or one corporation. Your co-op was built for everyone. Your co-op was built for your community. Learn more about co-op and find a location near you at co-op.crs. One thing I've learned through my experience with mental health and addictions is you never know what you need to hear until you hear it. Make sure to rate and review on Apple and to tell as many people as you can about the podcast so others can hear something they need to hear from one of my guests. After all, this is a free mental health service, which is a rare thing. So why not share with as many people as you can? It's three short paragraphs on a small little yellow notepad paper. She says who she is. She says who her mom is. And then she immediately went into saying, I can't help but to think about you guys who are locked up during this really tough time. Um, it must be incredibly difficult for you. Let me know if I can send you toilet paper or food or money or anything to make life easier, basically, for you. She didn't mention anything about the crash. She didn't mention anything about how the last 16 years have been so difficult because her mom hasn't been there for milestones in her life. She didn't mention anything about like it was such a thoughtful like it. I don't even know how to describe it. Was, like she is coming from a she was only concerned about my well-being. The guy who took her mother from her when she was 18 years old. And so I had to sit with that letter for the next two or three days just to try to think about how I wanted to respond. Um and so I, I, I composed like a six or seven page letter front and back. I detailed everything that I had done since the moment I stepped into state prison 16 years ago, um, because it was important for me to let her know that I, I, I wasn't just saying what sounded good to the courtroom on the day that I got sentenced. Like, this is my life now. This is my mission. This is my purpose. And so I needed to let her know everything I had done by that point. I, I had gotten a master's degree in psychology. I had gotten certified as a recovery mentor. I got certified as a substance abuse counselor. I had written a couple books. I had um, begun to tell my story at DUI victim impact panels inside the prison where they would bring uh, people from the community who had lost loved ones to, to, to DUI drivers and tell their story. And then one of us on the inside would tell our story. Um, and so I was committed to that. And I knew that once I got out of prison, I was going to likewise be committed to that work. So she gets the letter. She writes me back and she says, Martin, this is the best possible outcome that my family and I could have hoped for. And we are so glad that you stayed true to your word and you, you're doing what you said you were going to do. And I'm going to share this with my family when I see them again. And we exchanged a couple more letters after that. I haven't heard from her since then or since I've been out now two and a half years. I haven't heard from anybody on that side. And I may never. And that's OK, because I feel like that exchange of two or three letters at the time was exactly what was supposed to happen. Right. It gave me validation, Todd, that I didn't even know I needed when she told me that, that this was the best possible outcome. And she thanked me for that. Like. I can't even put into words how that felt. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm so I'm so thankful for that. Like that family has been so just just a beautiful, amazing family from the sentencing. Some of the things they said, um, they forgave me during the sentencing, which I didn't even I hoped that that would happen at some point. I had no idea it was going to come during that time. And it did. And so it's just um, I mean, I, I couldn't have asked for more and I didn't deserve any of it, honestly. Hmm. Wow, that's. That's extremely humbling to have someone that's such a selfless act to right. reach out one, not even mention the accident or anything that happened and just offer support to you. And then, yeah. Oh man. Right. Incredible. Um, so there is, so, so people are pretty good in general. <laughs> I, mean, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I know we're inundated with things on the news that would say otherwise, but exactly, man, yeah. there, there, there are some amazing, beautiful people on planet Earth um, that show humility and grace and kindness, even in spaces where where it's not it's not deserved. Frankly, I don't know about that. You're, I mean, I mean, it's easy for me to say, but. I don't, I don't, I'm sure everybody deserves forgiveness and yeah, everybody deserves I like empathy. Think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, have you ever reached out to the reporter that, that wrote that article? I did. Um, I reached out to that reporter. They are no longer there. They had forwarded the letter. So this is when I was still inside. I still had like maybe two and a half, three years left. Hmm. And um, another reporter picked up the letter and said, Oh my God, I think there's a story here. So they contacted me. They came into the prison, did an interview with me. And then they wanted to actually come to sit in on one of the the victim impact panels that I would be speaking at. So they could capture that side of it as well, because the prison system is what it is. There was all this red tape because she had already been on my visitors list to visit me to do the initial interview. Then she had to be off my visitors list for 90 days before she could come in to be in that setting. So it was just all this rigmarole and it eventually fell through. Um, so I haven't, haven't, you know, done any follow-up interviews um, with any news agencies around that, but you never know. Hmm. Cause it, cause even that, that line in the article, even, even that is uh, showing empathy in a way. I mean, they, they didn't say, I hope this guy burns in hell. It was like, I hope this guy gets the help he needs as well. No, it was, it was, it was pivotal. I mean, that was what really set everything into motion. That was what I needed to hear for me to, to go beyond just the the tragedy of the circumstance and really figure out, you know, what am I supposed to do with this now? Right? Like, how do I turn this tragedy into something much more, something that's purposeful, something that, something that, um, you know, uh, uh, that, that, that honors my victims. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, it was that statement, it was that statement that set everything into motion. And so it's, you know, I, I tell that line whenever I speak, because that was, that was the pivotal moment for me. Hmm. Um, and I mean, talking about mental health, what, what's it like being a black man in prison for 17 and a half years in, in America? Uh, it can take a toll on you psychologically. It it really can. And I was, you know, thinking about this, um, earlier, you know, when I knew I was coming on. And so, so, so prison institutions in general, I would say prison, not all institutions, but prison, I believe, um, at least the way I was made to feel was, is designed to dehumanize it's um, residents. Um, it is made to it is made um, to make you feel subhuman um, and 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 devalued. And I don't know if that's a way to psychologically control people so that you can you know keep everything in order and keep the prison you know um, uh, uh, functioning the way you need it to. But it is it is not good for the psyche. And so I had to you know as somebody who struggled with depression over his, um, his, uh, you know, uh, sense of self 
and have poor self-esteem and, and, and a low self-concept, you know, I really had to push back psychologically against um, those forces. And so, for instance, you know, when they when they you know, they they refer to you as your number, you know, inmate one, two, six, six, four, one, seven, five. Or you hear, you know, um, you know, uh, 46B. So if, I, if I'm in cell 46 and I'm on the bottom bunk, right, I'm 46B. I'm not Martin. I'm not Mr. Lockett. I'm not Martin Lockett. I'm not Sir. I'm not. I am numbers. Right. And so I had to kind of, you know, when I would hear my number, you know, uh, from the officer being yelled out over the intercom, I would have to kind of tell myself he's saying Martin. He's really saying Martin. It just sounds a little different, right? He's really saying Mr. Lockett. It just sounds a little different. Just so I wouldn't buy into this whole dehumanization, right, of myself. Um, so many guys would normalize um, things in prison. So like canteen, they would say, oh, I'm going to the store, right? Or for the the the, the um, medical center, they oh, I'm going to the hospital, or for their cell, they would call it their house or their room. And they, for them, I guess that helped them to cope. But for me, it was, it, it, that would have been me allowing myself to become institutionalized. Like prison is already difficult enough mentally because you're isolated from your family. You're isolated from things that are familiar, right? You're referred to as a number more often than your name. Um, you know, you're, you're wearing the same uniform as everybody else. So there's no individuality. All these things can take a serious toll on your mental health, um, on how you how you see yourself, how you perceive yourself, what your value is, what is your worth? Because if you buy into what the system tells you, you ain't worth crap. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're going to know every day that, 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 that you're not worth anything. And so I had to kind of psychologically push back. I would not refer to anything as my house, the store, the hospital, because prison is not normal. It is not a normal setting and I'm not going to normalize it. I am not. And so I kind of freed my mind by obviously my education and I would read a ton of um, self-help books and things like that. I would read inspirational books because it, it allowed me to get out of prison and to see myself you know, I would identify with some of these characters in these books and I would see myself in their lives and not as inmate one, two, six, six, four, one, seven, five, but as, you know, the public speaker, the counselor, the person who inspires, the person who, you know, is spiritual. Like I would identify with all these different people and characters in these books um, just to give myself some psychological relief. Mm. I, I take it that's not common. Or is it? It is amongst those who um, have been in prison decades. Um, so there, there, there's, a, there, there's a vast difference between the guys who have been in prison 15, 20, 30, 40 years versus guys who are only coming in. I say only. I mean, you know, if it's 18 months, that's 18 months of your freedom. So I'm not saying it's a small thing. It's a lot of time. But there's a different mentality with those guys because those guys, they're coming in and they're, you know, they know they're getting out. You know, they're going back like they're pretty much going to be almost the same age. You know, the kids are still going to be like life is still going to it's not going to change that much for guys who are coming in with sentences like mine. I'm not going home for the next 210 months like I have to like I have to find a way to, to see things different. Right. And, and, and honestly, it, you know, I tell this story sometimes. So when I got to prison in January of 2005, and I remember it was, it was, it was very cold, obviously. And I go outside, I got, I'm bundled up, you know, I got my beanie on, I got my jacket on, I'm walking around the track and I'm just looking around to take in my surroundings. You know, guys are lifting weights, guys are playing sports, guys are walking the track, guys are on the phone. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how I ended up in this situation. And, you know, I really kind of did a, an analysis of my life. And for the next hour, I'm just really delving deep into like where everything started for me. And I reached the conclusion, you know, if I'm going to leave prison a different person, and I don't know what that different person is going to look like, but it's got to be different than the way I've been going, then, then you know, s- something has to change like within me, 
And then I realized that it's not just something that has to change, but everything has to change because it wasn't merely just a bad choice that I made that led me to prison for 17 and a half years. It was a series of poor choices every single day, Todd. Getting behind the wheel to drink after I had drank every day was a poor choice. Going to the store and buying four 24-ounce cans of beer every day was a poor choice, right? Going to clubs every weekend and drinking and taking home women and sleeping with them, it was all poor choices. It was me playing Russian roulette with my life and with other people's lives. When I'm on the road every day, it's not just me that I'm, you know, I'm putting everybody's life in danger. And so and so once I realized that, it, you know, it's a series of poor choices that I made. And so if I'm, if I'm going to turn things around, I have to start making a series of good choices. I have to I have to, first of all, understand my addiction from the beginning and where it all started for me, um, why I felt so low about myself. And honestly, it was a lack of um, an understanding of my culture, of my heritage, Right. Because I used to I used to feel ashamed that I was black. Right. Um, and, and before I knew, like, you know, what my heritage was and, and, and you know, um, uh, the lineage of people that I come from. And so I had to educate myself. I, I took I, I read a lot of books and man, it just like I was just I was just so um, inspired and renewed and empowered you know, um, and so today, like I love who I am as a black man in America. Yeah, we have struggles and we have, you know, uh, things pushing against us. But like I wouldn't change I wouldn't change me for anybody in the world, man. Hmm. I wouldn't at all. That's you're a miracle. <laughs> OK, well, that's that's what my counselor at the, the addiction treatment center I went to would always say. So you guys are in here right now. You're all miracles. You've made it. I made it, it here. You're, you're in a place of healing now. So that's yeah, right. That's, that's amazing. Uh, this segment is called that some bunny special. It's a segment where we chat about who cooperated in your mental health journey and helped fill your emotional tank brought to you by co-op. So through, through this whole, well, through your whole life, I guess, or in your darkest times, who, who would you say was, was there for you uh, that you want to give a shout out to? I mean, none of this would have happened if it was not for my fiance that I met literally a year and a half into my prison sentence. So I still had 16 years left. I met this amazing woman. She, um, you know, talked to me about my goals and how I wanted to spend my time in prison. And frankly, she believed in me before I believed in myself. You know, at that point, I didn't have a whole lot of reason to believe in myself, but she saw something in me. So she supported my goals. She helped me to get connected, you know, to these universities that I began to take courses from outside of the prison. Um, I, I literally hand wrote my, my first book in my prison cell. She typed it all out, got it all manuscript, you know, formatted, uh, reached out to the publishing company. I mean, just everything, um, is, is, is attributed to her. And, um, so, uh, definitely shout out to her. And then, um, uh, a guy I consider a mentor a sponsor, just all around fantastic human being. He was the, my clinical director that, um, when I went through the program inside the prison, the seven month treatment program, then I began to work for him to get the hours to get certified and all that. Um, Ricardo, he was, he has got, got like 37 years clean and sober, um, started this program, uh, about 25 years ago inside the prison, man, he has helped countless guys, uh, get their lives back. And, mm. you know, he's so wise. And, and so um, he's even helped me since I've been out of prison now for two and a half years with some things. So huge shout out to him as well for getting me to where I am today. Those are two good ones. Real good ones. <laughs> yes, I would say so. So it was the last time you drank that night of the accident? Yes, it was January 1st of 2004. Damn, damn. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I kind of remember what I was going to say before. Have you seen the documentary 13th? It's about the 13th amendment. Yes, I am familiar. I have not seen it, but I'm glad you reminded me because when I was inside, I told myself when I get out, I really want to see that. It is shocking. I mean, that's what I heard I, as a Canadian, especially because it's like, I'm just, we're very close. 
you know, culturally right. and stuff and stuff. So, so it's due to like the prison system in America is just, it's astronomical. It's, it, it, it's, it's, a, I don't want to use the word insane, but it is crazy. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, it really is. Um, and I read the book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And I think the movie is, mm. is largely synonymous with that and how the 13th Amendment was 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 designed, um, you know, basically to create this system of uh, of mass incarceration and free labor and slave labor, basically, right within within yeah. the prison system. And you talk about the prison industrial com- complex. That's a whole other podcast that, that, that could be done <laughs> on that. Seriously, but like you yeah. have these enterprises, these private corporations coming into prisons, contracting with the prisons, the inmates. We, you know, we think it's the greatest job ever because we get to make $150 to $250 a month, which is unheard of in prison. The average salary is about $35 to $38 a month. So when you're when you're working these jobs, they have call centers set up in prison. I worked for the Oregon DMV. So you have people calling to get their licenses renewed, their cars registered. They're talking to a prisoner. They don't know they're talking to a prisoner, but they're talking to a prisoner on the computer, getting things set up for them because they get to pay us $150 a month as opposed to paying somebody actual wages, right? And it says, I mean, multi-millions and billions of dollars come through the prison industrial complex um, for for profiteering, for, you know, capitalists. God, unreal. Yeah. Man, (laughs) Uh, if you don't mind talking about uh, what you've been up to for the last two and a half years and especially the last month or two months. Sure. So when I got out in 2021, I started working at lines for life, um, which is a substance use mental health um, organization in Portland. And basically, so we take um, all the 988 uh, suicide prevention or suicide crisis line calls in the state of Oregon. We have, the drug and alcohol helpline. We have the military helpline for veterans who are struggling. We have the senior loneliness line. We have the youth line. So basically we have um, numerous crisis lines to meet people's individual um, uh, needs. And I am the director of cultural engagement uh, with Lines for Life, where I run a small team. We go into the Portland metro area. We specifically talk to black, brown and indigenous folks about mental health issues, substance use issues, try to have a normal conversation because we know it's still very much stigmatized. Um, and so once we can we can kind of make some inroads with that, then we offer them culturally responsive mental health and substance use resources. So that is something um, I've only been doing that for about a month and a half. Uh, I was promoted to that role. Um, before that, I uh, took calls on the drug and alcohol line and so for people in Oregon, when you get cited with a small amount of drugs, uh, it's no longer criminalized. You get a citation. You call. You would call me or one of my colleagues. We would do a screening with you over the phone. And then we would um, try to get you connected, uh, if you were willing, try to get you connected to substance use resources uh, in your area. And um, so that work is still happening. I'm just not directly a part of it as I'm running this small team now in the community. Mm-hmm. So that's what I do in my day job. Privately, I speak around the country um, at DUI victim impact panels. I have one, a remote one tonight in about an hour and 50 minutes. And um, to first time DUI offenders, I speak at alcohol highway safety classes. I speak uh, in high schools. I speak at colleges um, and I speak at conferences. Uh, a lot of the conferences I do are um, law enforcement conferences with uh, uh drug recognition expert officers and DUI officers and um, probation officers, parole officers, things like that. And, um, and I share my story and, um, you know, and then of course, you know, thank them for the work that they're doing to keep us all safer. And um, yeah, so I, I do a lot of, a lot of public speaking. Man, that's incredible that <laughs> you just came out of prison with all the credentials already there. Plus the life experience, and you just you just got to work right away. I did, you know, and I'm I'm a huge, huge, huge believer, Todd, in um, the laws of attraction. I don't know if you've seen the documentary, read the book, The Secret, but I mm-hmm. because 
for years when I was inside and I'm walking around the track, I'm envisioning myself speaking in front of these audiences. I'm envisioning myself, you know, working with clients privately, which is another thing I do. I work for a mental health organization uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, They get clients referred through their jobs and then I will work with them remotely um, uh, on a private, you know, uh, privately. And so I envision all these things happening. So when I got out, um, you know, that my energy went toward that right? My energy went, I had already seen it. I had already, you know, envisioned it and I knew it was going to happen. It was just about a matter of me now physically getting out and, and connecting the dots. And so all these doors are opening. And once you kind of put yourself in these spaces, you meet other people, they get you connected. And so it, it just kind of organically happens. But, you know, people ask me where sometimes, you know, are you surprised at all? You know, you're having this success. Like I'm very humbled. I'm very grateful. But I'm not surprised because I knew 10 years ago when I was in prison, 12 years ago, 13, I knew it was going to happen because I saw it. And that's what I put my energy into. And nobody was going to convince me that it wasn't going to happen. So you've manifested your own destiny now. Yes, indeed. Right on. I love it. I appreciate all the work you're doing. And, uh, you know, I said, uh, you know, I said, I'm sorry that you went through all this. And of course, I'm sorry for the people that lost their lives as well but it's it's just yeah you've got an incredible story and uh i just appreciate you and all the work you're doing thank you so much todd and i appreciate you and for you sharing stories very um you know a a diverse um arrangement of stories right because i think all of our stories matter and they all have value and and they're all going to resonate differently with 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 people out there in your audience and so thank you for the work that you're doing to highlight mental health i love how you can be very funny about it sometimes um oh, you you're listen. very open oh yes i listen oh, I, okay. you, you you are quite the character um <laughs> but uh but no but 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 this this helps to normalize these conversations right they don't always have to be so you know, uptight and serious. And yeah, they're serious, but like we can normalize it as well and bring more people into the fold and have conversations around how to get people help. So thank you uh, for the unique spin that you put on it. Well, thank you. I just, I I don't take compliments well, so I thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you so much, Martin. Uh, you're such an amazing guy and, and, and an inspiration. Uh, I, I hope people are listening to you and taking your advice and t- taking your wise words and your experiences to heart. Martin and I tried to record quite a while back and, <laughs> uh, well, without going into too much detail, I dropped the ball a little bit. So it was nice that we were able to finally do it. Uh, and you can follow Martin on Instagram. Uh, I will put all that in the show notes. And yeah, he, he's he's also written, um, he's, he's an author, so you can find his books and all types of stuff there. You can hire him as a speaker and uh, yeah, just go go check it out. So if you've been listening for a while, uh, you know that I've had, I've been teasing a major announcement for the podcast uh, and it, it's, I'm still teasing. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you this, there's going to be a second episode a week coming soon and consistently, and it's going to be co-hosted and um, that's all I'll tell you for now. Um, but it's going to be great. It, we've recorded a couple episodes already and we've been working really hard. So um, hopefully we can start releasing those episodes soon and make it the announcement, but um, stay tuned. It's, it's a good one. But anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, I'll see you next week. Uh, I haven't decided. Maybe I'll, I'll throw a midweek one here coming up. Uh, my life's been a little, my personal life's been a little bananas lately. So it, it all depends on how much time I have. Plus, it's the holidays coming up and stuff. So, um, But don't be surprised. There could be an episode in the middle of the week here. Uh, but anyway, until next time, please remember to make your beds and take your meds. Bye.